This morning's reading is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Thanks, Kim. Please keep that passage open. How do you do the work of God when you're facing opposition? How do you win the argument and take the people with you when there are plenty of people who want to trip you up? This is the challenge that faces Nehemiah. And this was the challenge that faced Johann Sebastian Bach, you may be surprised to know. After various moves and prominent jobs, Johann Sebastian Bach finally settled down in Leipzig in 1723, where he remained for the rest of his life. Bach's stay in Leipzig as musical director and choirmaster wasn't always happy. He was constantly opposed by the council. Neither the council nor the people appreciated his musical genius. They said he was a stuffy old man who clung stubbornly to obsolete forms of music. Consequently, they paid him a miserable salary, and when he died, they even contrived to defraud his widow of her meagre inheritance. Ironically, in this setting, Bach wrote his most enduring music. For a time, he wrote a cantata each week, Today, a composer who writes a cantata a year is highly praised. 
202 of Bach's cantatas survive. Most conclude with a chorale, a hymn, based on a simple Lutheran hymn. And the music is all very biblical. After Bach's death, people seemed glad to wipe their ears of his music. Some of his music was sold, and some was reportedly used to wrap rubbish. For the next 80 years, his music was neglected by the public, although a few musicians, Mozart and Beethoven, admired it. Not until 1829, when Felix Mendelssohn arranged a performance of The Passion of St. Matthew, did a larger audience appreciate Bach the composer. Bach achieved great works of genius, despite terrible opposition. We must do the work of God in the face of opposition. That's one of the fundamental lessons we learn from Nehemiah. God calls him to leave the comfort of his senior role in Susa, where he was cupbearer to the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. It's the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, 445 BC. The land of Judah is totally run down, an almost forgotten backwater in the Persian Empire. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah is a Jew. He cares desperately about the state of Jerusalem. And so, summoning all his courage, Nehemiah has asked the king to release him from his service in Susa and to allow Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to do nothing less than to rebuild it. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's where God chose to put the temple. The equivalent in the New Testament is the church. So just as Nehemiah surveys the ruin of Jerusalem and determines to do something about it, so we should look at the state of the church in our society and determine to do something about it. But all the time, Nehemiah faces opposition. There's Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab, who were local officials and may have been jealous that Nehemiah is appointed governor. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem implacably set themselves in opposition to Nehemiah and his project. In the same way, we face the opposition of Satan and demons as we set about building the church in the New Testament era. The great good news is that Satan is defeated. God is sovereign. The Lord Jesus himself is committed to building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But for the time being, we must face the reality of hostility and opposition. But all the time,
faced with the challenge of winning people's hearts and minds. Three things to say. Be shrewd, be clear, and be bold. Firstly then, be shrewd. Verses 11 to 16. Nehemiah is shrewd. To be shrewd means to be wise or canny. Verse 11. He waits three days in Jerusalem before he does anything. And then, verse 12, he sets out during the night. Nehemiah ensures secrecy for his mission. He takes just a few companions. He says, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He keeps his mission under wraps until he has time to gather more information. And so riding, probably on a donkey, verse 13, Nehemiah goes on a reconnaissance mission. He conducts a survey of the city walls. Chiefly, he mentions the southern and eastern sides of Jerusalem, what's known as the city of David and the Kidron Valley. The rubble is piled so high in verse 14 that there's not enough room for Nehemiah to get through on his donkey. So he goes up the Kidron Valley by night back to the valley gate. Nehemiah is very shrewd. He conducts his survey by night so that he can evade all opposition. Verse 16 he doesn't even tell the officials what he's doing. He doesn't say anything to the Jews or the priests or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah plays his cards close to his chest. He ascertains the facts first before he makes his work public knowledge. Jesus also teaches the importance of shrewdness. He says in Matthew 10:16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Jesus expects us to outwit our opponents while all the time not falling into sin. Shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus also told the parable of the shrewd manager in Luke 16. It's a strange parable, but Jesus says the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light in Luke 16.8. Jesus is again saying, we should be shrewd. Nehemiah was shrewd. Secondly, be clear, verses 17 and 18. Shrewdness is not a reason to conceal your ultimate goal. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, 
Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. So at the right time, in possession of the facts, Nehemiah goes public about his mission. And we must do the same. Christina O'Done is the former deputy editor of the New Statesman. She says, I was invited to speak at a conference on marriage to be held at the Law Society in London. The conference was a chance for supporters of traditional marriage to contribute to the debate. The title, One Man, One Woman, Making the Case for Marriage for the Good of Society, could hardly have sounded more sober. I accepted without a second thought. A few days before the conference, the sponsors of the event rang me and said that the Law Society had refused to let us meet on their premises. The theme was contrary to our diversity policy. The Society explained in an email to the organisers, espousing as it does an ethos which is opposed to same-sex marriage. In other words, the Law Society regarded support for heterosexual union as discriminatory. Hurriedly, another venue was found in the heart of London, a publicly owned modern building situated across the road from Westminster Abbey. But with only 24 hours to go before the conference, managers at that venue told Christian Concern that the subject it planned to discuss was inappropriate the booking was cancelled. When challenged, the centre's chief executive cited its diversity policy as reason for the cancellation. A journalist asked for a copy of the diversity policy. The centre refused to, to provide it. By the time I took part in the event, which had been moved to the basement of a hotel in central London, I concluded not only Christians but also Muslims and Jews increasingly feel they are no longer free to express any belief that runs counter to the prevailing fashions for superficial tolerance and equality. Intolerance is now state-sanctioned when it comes to crushing the rights of those who dissent from the new orthodoxy. This is why we must be shrewd and choose our moment to go public. Christians must find a way to share our convictions without getting angry or defensive, loving those who disagree with us. But ultimately, just like Nehemiah, we have to go public about our convictions and even our plans. The reason Nehemiah can be confident to do this is because, verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. It had pleased the king to send Nehemiah back in verse 6. God was graciously with Nehemiah. God would not bless Nehemiah's mission before the king, only to withdraw his blessing at this stage. No, 
Nehemiah, as we saw last week, was a great man of prayer, both regular time set aside with God and in using arrow prayers, shooting up emergency prayers at crucial moments. Nehemiah knew God was with him, and so he has the confidence to go public with his mission. We also must be people of prayer so that we can know God is with us in our endeavours. Because thirdly, we must be bold. Verses 19 and 20. God allows Nehemiah to face opposition. Just as we face opposition. The people of Jerusalem, the priests, the nobles, the officials... And others who would be doing the work all reply in verse 18, let us start rebuilding. Nehemiah has successfully stirred up the people to work on this great endeavour. Nehemiah has won the people over. But verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Well, categorically, Nehemiah was not rebelling against the king. Nehemiah had the king's blessing. And Nehemiah is bold in standing up to his opponents. Verse 20. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah knows that the king is on his side, but he attributes his authority not to Artaxerxes, but to the God of heaven. Moreover, Nehemiah clearly distinguishes between God's people and the enemies of God who oppose the work. In fact, he now makes no effort to include them or to pursue further discussions with them. They have no share in Jerusalem or any historic right to it. Nehemiah is very bold. He states his course and he goes forward in the face of opposition, winning the support of the majority of the people. Well, let's draw these threads together. Nehemiah is shrewd. He plans to outwit his opponents. Jesus says we should be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This is something to pray about. Is there a situation where you are under pressure, in work maybe, or in the community? Pray for wisdom. 
Pray for shrewdness. Pray for the ability to stay one step ahead of the opposition. What's the equivalent of a nighttime reconnaissance? Is there a way you can outwit an opponent while remaining as innocent as a dove? That's the challenge, isn't it? It's easy to outwit our opponents by being economical with the truth. Jesus is calling us to the highest standards of truth and probity, just like Nehemiah. But he's not calling us to be a pushover. He's calling us to win battles, to think ahead. But at the same time, he's calling us to be clear, clear about the gospel, clear what we stand for. A few years ago, there was a debate between Professor Richard Dawkins, the leading atheist, and Professor John Lennox, the leading Christian thinker. Richard Dawkins attempted to humiliate John Lennox by telling the audience that Professor Lennox believed in a God who had come to earth and allowed himself to be crucified on a cross. Professor Lennox responded by saying thank you to Professor Dawkins for making his case for him. John Lennox is very clever, but he's not embarrassed to be clear about the key claims of the gospel. And neither should we be embarrassed. On the contrary, we should be clear about all the great claims of the Bible. We should say, this is what we believe. This is the direction of travel. This is what we want for our church. A church which will stand for the historic gospel. This is what we want for our society, that Christianity should be given an equal opportunity to compete in the marketplace of ideas. And then we're praying that God will bless the preaching of the gospel and that there'll be a great turning back to God in our society. It's happened before. Some of you may remember how I studied the 1859 revival in my sabbatical five years ago. That was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit when hundreds of thousands of people became Christians. There were several Christian revivals in the 19th century. There was a famous revival in Wales in 1904. God can certainly revive his church again. And we need to be clear. This is what we're praying for. And this is what we're working for. And then we need to be bold. We need to believe, as in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. In 1996, I went to work for St. Michael's Chester Square in London. 
I was a lonely, lowly, not lonely, I wasn't lonely. I was a lowly trainee, a dog's body. The church was at a low ebb. Charles Marnham had recently come to be vicar. Shortly before Charles arrived, St. Michael's had revitalised a local church in Pimlico. This was great for the church in Pimlico. It wasn't so good for St. Michael's because all the youth and vitality had gone to Pimlico. St. Michael's was left with an ageing and shrinking congregation. It had been a badly planned and badly executed church revitalisation. Charles Marnham had to rebuild St. Michael's, which is what he did, not unlike Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Charles had to believe, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. And he stayed for 25 years, and under God, he rebuilt the church, despite demonic opposition. That's a microcosm of the task which faces the Christian church generally in the UK. Things are at a low ebb. Very many churches are getting older and smaller. It falls to all of us to be builders with God, to pray, to work, to share the gospel, no matter what the opposition. Are you up for the task? Shall we build together? Let's build up God's church. However, remember this. The job of saviour of the world has already been taken. We must learn from Nehemiah's example and give ourselves to building up God's church. But there is another who left the comfort of a lovely place, just as Nehemiah left Susa, and came to be born as one of us, Jesus the saviour of the world. Ultimately, we don't just follow Nehemiah. We follow Jesus. And we build with Christ. He is building his church. The gates of hell are not prevailing against it. Are you building with him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've called us to the great work of building up your church. Help us to be shrewd and clear and bold. Make us faithful, Lord, in sharing the gospel and representing Christ in our society. Please build up the church here at Christ Church. We pray for a really good Exploring Christianity group on Wednesday evening.
Please, Lord, show each one of us who we can bring along to that meeting on, on Wednesday. We pray for every aspect of our church together. Please, Lord, help us to build up the work. Grant us success, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.